<laughs> All right, I am going to get uh, started right now on our next next presentation. This is a little bit more uh, interactive, a lot less lecture, even though there is some lecture portion to it. So this is. Uh, a presentation that I've done in a couple of different formats before. I call it a taste of toxicology. There's only a couple of things here that I'd really recommend that you taste, and you don't have to taste anything. But it's mostly sights and smells, as demonstrated by these people right here who are having a great time. So, pardon me, there's a question in the audience? No, not yet? Okay, you'll, you'll hold it. So. There's a couple of workshop stations. These four desks, each one of them has two different stations. The numbers don't really matter that much. You don't all have to start at number one, but I'm going to give you about 20 minutes, which I know with this group is going to turn into 30, to rotate through all of these eight different exhibits. And there is something to see or smell or possibly taste uh, at each one. There are answer sheets out there where you can write down your best guess as to what it is, what toxin it is that is being demonstrated. And you can go ahead and work with each other or ask each other questions or ask me questions. Because then, once you're all done filling out these eight different things and seeing and smelling and tasting them, we're all going to sit down and then I'm going to be going over the answers. Well, I'm going to be asking you for the answers and then I'm going to be giving a couple of slide presentation about each. So this is where you guys spread out and go to these different stations and try to figure out what's going on. And we'll reconvene in about 20, which for you guys means 30 minutes. See you then. Two of the smell things smell nice, and one of them smells awful. You're going to quickly figure out which one that is. All right, through the magic of the space-time continuum, people who are watching this on podcast have now gone 20 minutes into the future. Oh, big problem, of course. You can see all the answers now if you're looking at the small stuff on the side. Okay, uh, does anybody think that they got all eight? Dr. Pitts? All right. <clears throat> no, you don't have to. I, I'm hoping that you at least tried to guess. I'm sure that you all tried to guess. So station number one, this is the two-year-old who had mothball ingestion and then presented after having fits, which actually turns out to be status epilepticus. So. What is this? What, can anybody describe what, what the smell was? This was kind of the, the spicy scented one, not the terrible scented one, and not the one that was minty. So you said menthol. Were you referring to the one that was more minty or station number one? 
Yeah. I guess I would describe it as, as somewhat spicier, kind of a warmer scent than, than menthol was. So what was it? Anybody know? Naphthalene was the guess. No, that unfortunately is not correct. It is something that is used in mothballs, but that's not what that was. This is camphor. Oh, you got it right, and you didn't want to speak up? Okay. Uh, if, if you want to show off, anybody can show off here. So this is camphor, which is an aromatic derivative from a particular plant, which is called Cinnamomum camphora. It's actually closely related to the cinnamon plant, but it has a different kind of spicy, smelly uh, derivative that comes from it. And camphor was formerly available in mothballs. It is no longer available in mothballs because it really is just way too toxic to just be something that you kind of toss around your house and leave in a drawer or leave in your closet for your pets or your small children to get into it. And it was also available over the counter in this liquid called camphorated oil. And that was 20% camphor. And the reason it was used is basically because it was really smelly. And if it smells strong, then it must be strong. And you would use it as a, as a muscle rub or if your chest was congested, you'd rub it on your chest just like you do with mentholatum because mentholatum contains mostly camphor and a little bit of menthol in it as well. But you can imagine if you've got 20% camphor in a bottle and you give a teaspoon of that to your kid, that might be a bit of a problem. And camphor is still found in a number of over-the-counter products, as I mentioned before, mentholatum, Vicks VapoRub, camphophenique, which actually you stick in your mouth. You just are hopefully using small doses of it. When you get exposed to too much camphor, you get the rapid onset of seizures with or without respiratory depression. And the toxic dose, the dose that might cause a seizure in a person, is less than a gram of it. And so if you remember, if anybody opened this up and actually took a look in it, that chunk of camphor in there is considerably larger than uh, one gram. And I actually purchased that uh, through eBay, somebody was selling some old household products, and this was a tin of camphor for use as mothballs. I don't know exactly what date it's from. Given the artwork on the box, I would say 1920s or 1930s, because they haven't sold that over the counter for mothballs, I think, since the early 60s, maybe. Now, with the currently available over-the-counter products that contain camphor, about one or two teaspoons of them can give you a dose of about a gram of camphor. Now, it would be pretty hard, I think, to choke down a big finger full of mentholatum to do this, but y you could if you really wanted to. So this was too dangerous to use as mothballs. And so it got replaced with a less toxic agent, which was naphthalene. But naphthalene is now no longer available as mothballs because even though it was safer than camphor, it was still pretty nasty. And if you ingested a couple of these, you might end up with some pretty bad hemolysis and methemoglobinemia. And so now when you go out and purchase mothballs, they're made out of paradichlorobenzene. And I actually have a box. Uh, that picture right there is a product that I have right in my office. And I would have brought it out here, except it would have given away uh, some of the answers, or at least what the answer was not going to be. And also, this stuff is just volatile. And if you let it sit out for weeks and weeks, it just kind of dissipates in, into the air. And that's why when you walk into an institutional restroom, I don't know about the women's restrooms, but at least the men's, they have these urinal cakes of paradichlorobenzene. And that gives it that kind of chemical 
smell, which isn't quite as biting as the camphor smell. And it is fairly non-toxic compared to naphthalene and to camphor. You would have to choke down several of them, then it would give you maybe uh, some CNS depression, possibly seizures, but it would take a, choking down quite a lot of this to cause that kind of a problem. Interestingly, I found that you can still find camphor mothballs available online like you can find just about anything available online. And so here's one particular product that looks like it's coming from either China or Japan. And despite the product being 99% pure camphor, these mothballs are, if you read the ad, harmless and safe to the human body. Obviously, that has not been cleared by the FDA. Okay, station number two the potentially poisonous hedge. This is a picture of a plant that is actually in my front yard that I use as a hedge between my property and my neighbor's property. And uh, my neighbor never came up to me and told me that he thought that this was poisoning his kids, but I thought that would, would be an amusing story. Oh, so what is it? Ah, oh, I blew it by hitting the uh, button a little bit too fast. So I hope that you can recognize this plant. It is found all over... Uh, Southern California, mostly because this plant is kind of impossible to kill, and so it's great to plant by the side of a road or in a freeway median or places like that where they're not going to get a lot of care because they just thrive in this kind of environment. Saying that, actually, my hedge is doing very poorly. I don't know what's, go what's going on. My poisonous plants are being poisoned. So this particular style of oleander is called nerium oleander. As I mentioned, it's a very hardy ornamental plant. It's planted along freeways, and it contains digoxin-like glycosides. And just like digoxin, if you get exposed to too much of this, you can get vomiting, you can get cardiac arrhythmias, bradycardia, all the cardiac abnormalities that we were talking about before in the M&M case. And of course, it is potentially fatal if you eat enough. And if you actually took the leaves and started choking them down, you know, they taste terrible, but if you were really dedicated, you could ingest a toxic amount. But yes, Dr. Pitts. You may be covered, but I had a, a lady who uh, made oleander tea because she wanted to kill herself. Well, that's a pretty good way to kill yourself making an oleander tea. There's uh, several case reports in, uh, in the literature about that. So the, uh, the question I have for you being an expert is that watched her for several hours, she had nothing. But then the toxicologist I talked to, Loma Linda, where we ultimately transferred her, uh, commented that frequently the tea version of the oleander digoxin-like uh, glycosides um, takes a long time. It's a long, it's a super long acting, so it takes a while for it to get up I don't know how much I would agree with that statement that because it's a tea, it's going to take longer for you to get toxicity. Because it... I don't know. I'm just asking. Well, for, to get di the digoxin-like effect that you want when you're treating somebody with AFib, it takes some time because it has to get from the bloodstream into the myocardium, and that's going to take a certain amount of time. Now, if you ingest something, it's got to cross your gut barrier and then get into your heart. But I would think that if you ingested the solid plant material, that that would be much more delayed than making a tea because it's already in solution. And so I don't know if there was some miscommunication or misunderstanding during that conversation. Uh, I do think that it would be reasonable to say, 
this person needs at least several hours worth of observation, if not admission, because the effects might be delayed, and we have no idea what the dose ingested was. But I don't buy the argument that because it was a T, it's going to take longer. So the issue that I have seen come up, mostly in the lay literature, is oleander is poisonous, don't put it in your yard. Oleander is poisonous. Keep your dogs away from it. Keep your kids away from it. There's some older reports, and by older I mean decades or sometimes even centuries older, saying that if you sleep under oleander that the toxin will permeate the air and kill you. If you drink water that the flowers had fallen into, that's poisonous and you're going to get uh, sick from that. And this is something which puzzled me for a long time because I didn't think that it was true. And I've just been trying to find cases of people being poisoned by oleander through such means, and it's very, very difficult to find anything about it. So you can find emergency medicine textbooks and toxicology textbooks saying that you can get oleander poisoning by using the branches as skewers to cook food. I've heard this ever since I was in Cub Scouts, that there was some Boy Scout troop and they put their hot dogs or their marshmallows on oleander, and then they all got sick and died, or some died and some had to go to the hospital. And I've just searched for well over a decade and haven't found very much about this. So there's no published cases of people getting oleander poisoning through using the sticks as skewers since the early 19th century from 1809. And those reports are obviously very suspect. They're probably propaganda. And there was no kind of analytic studies done. There was just a number of soldiers who died. And so obviously it was the oleander. And so I actually did a study a few years ago where I got some oleander sticks and cooked hot dogs on them and then sent the hot dogs to a veterinary toxicology lab because more animals, grazing livestock, get into oleander than people do, and found out that, yes, there were detectable oleandrin levels, but you would need to eat hundreds of hot dogs before you would actually get sick, and I don't think anybody really does that. In addition, there's a number of more practical problems using oleander sticks that uh, if you use the dry ones, if you're trying to put a hot dog on it, it has these kind of fork-like projections that come out that prevent you from putting it on the small end, so you have to jam them on the big end. And then if you use a fresh one, it's just way too limp, and you couldn't actually get it over a fire. So I think this is all an urban myth. Additional myths, like I said, sleeping under or near oleander plants is poisonous. Drinking water into which the flowers have fallen is poisonous. And another interesting one that I'd really like to test one day, smoke from fires that include oleander plants as poisonous. This is a common urban myth that goes around the firefighting community. Oh, watch out, there's oleander in the area. There was only one case report that I've ever found of somebody who might have gotten sick from oleander, uh, oleandrin poisoning from smoke, but that case report is really poorly written. Uh, there was a detectable digoxin level, but we have endogenous digoxin-like glycosides in our body to begin with, which weren't really ruled out. <clears throat> well, I've talked about the myths. What about some oleander realities? Intentional suicidal ingestion of the leaves or a tea brewed from oleander have resulted in severe cardiotoxicity. There have been several case reports of this in the United States. In South Asia, 
India and Sri Lanka, there's a closely related plant called the yellow oleander, which contains similar cardiac glycosides and is a very, very popular method of suicide in South Asia. And almost all of the good modern studies about plant digoxin poisoning come from South Asia because of that. So the poison's in the flower? The poison, the oleandrin, is in the entire plant. It is in the highest concentration in the leaves and the lowest concentration in the flowers. So station number three, this was a three-year-old who ingests some cookie flavoring. And does anybody remember or can describe what this smelled like and or what they think that it is? Spearmint was a guess. That is close. Half of that is correct. Ooh, you're suggesting that there's some stereoisomerism? Yeah. Uh, that's, a, that's an interesting thought. Um, I don't know where to go with that. <laughs> uh, it was a minty kind of smell. It was a pleasant kind of smell. There's certainly candies and foods that contain that in that that I've eaten and I presume you all have. Peppermint was the next guess. No, wintergreen. That is correct. So this was oil of wintergreen. So methyl salicylate is oil of wintergreen. And you can purchase this stuff. I got several bottles of it just through eBay. Again, like you can get, uh, get anything. And when you get oil of wintergreen, it is essentially 100% methyl salicylate because it is a liquid and it has this pungent, pleasant uh, smell. And in this particular case, in this story, the problem was, yes, they were making wintergreen flavored cookies, but you're supposed to use the extract of wintergreen, which might be a couple percent methyl salicylate and a bit of alcohol and all the rest of its water, but it smells identical to the concentrated oil of wintergreen, and that's what the kid took a couple of sips of. So each teaspoon of this contains about seven grams of salicylate, so that's the equivalent to just over 20 tablets of aspirin. And in, the, in this case, with a three-year-old kid, what does he weigh? 15 kilos, 20 tops. That is a pretty large dose of salicylate that uh, that kid got. So very small doses can cause serious toxicity. In addition, and this harkens back to the question about the oleander tea, how long does it take to absorb this stuff? The done nomogram, which is sometimes used to evaluate salicylate toxicity, is based upon taking non-enteric coated aspirin tablets, which get absorbed at a certain rate, whereas if you ingest a liquid, presumably it gets absorbed faster. And so plotting a salicylate level on a nomogram would be less helpful. So I believe. We went over this not very long ago. Dr. Mortazavi was talking about salicylate toxicity, but I'm going to repeat it again. It certainly bears repeating. You get a number of interesting metabolic complications. You get a respiratory alkalosis, and this tends to occur first. This is from stimulation of the CNS respiratory center. And then shortly after that, you'll develop a metabolic acidosis with a widening of your anion gap. And so depending upon when the patient presents and how salicylate toxic they are, they might present alkalemic uh, or acidemic or right in the middle. And just because you have a pH of 7.4 doesn't necessarily mean that you're OK. If you have a respiratory alkalosis and a metabolic acidosis that just cancel each other out, you're actually moderately uh, sick at that point.
Kids tend to present with acidosis because they transition from the respiratory alkalosis to the metabolic acidosis earlier than adults do. Well, they should, they should, they would have a low PCO2 and a low bicarb at the same time. And so the ratio between them is normal. Yes. Okay. You very often hear about tinnitus associated with salicylate toxicity, and that is definitely true. A couple of things that I want to point out. Tinnitus is U.S., not I.S. It is not an inflammatory process. Like pruritus is U.S. and not I.S. And although it's typically described in writing as a ringing in the ears, it is much more common, I have found, to have the patient say, there's this rushing sound or a roaring sound or like a waterfall in my ears, or sometimes simply that they present with decreased auditory acuity, and you find that you have to speak very loud to the patient for them to be able to understand what you're saying. And nausea and vomiting are very, very commonly associated with salicylate toxicity, too. If somebody came in who never had any nausea and vomiting, I'd actually wonder if they were salicylate toxic in the first place. So how do we treat salicylate overdose? You want to hydrate them. The primary route that we're going to get rid of excess salicylate is through renal excretion. At therapeutic doses, we're getting rid of it mostly through hepatic metabolism, but that's easily saturated. So by the time you're toxic, you're getting rid of the bulk of it through renal excretion, so you want to hydrate them. And they're also usually kind of dry by the time they get sick enough to show up to the emergency department. My fellowship director was fond of saying a sick salicylate toxic patient is four to six liters behind by the time they hit the ED. I don't know if that's based upon any real information or just his personal opinion. And then after you've got them hydrated and they're diuresing, you can consider alkalinization with sodium bicarb. This decreases distribution of salicylate into the tissues. You would like it not to get into the CNS where it's going to cause CNS depression, cerebral edema. You want to keep it in the vascular compartment and also alkalinizing them decreases reabsorption from the urine. You're excreting it into your urine through your kidneys but you don't want to then resorb it and you can ion trap it in the urine. And then if they're really sick or they're getting worse, then you go on to hemodialysis. All right, on to station number four, these little nut-like nuggets. So the uh, patient who had coma after eating this health food for, quote, internal cleansing. And what is this? Or at least what was the toxicity that this patient was exhibiting? Don't make me go to Dr. Pitts. Uh, no, I don't want to check for updates. Who was that? What was that? Cyanide. This was cyanide poisoning. So <clears throat> when you go to the store and you buy yourself an apricot, well, it looks like this. So it has this fruity part around the pit. And then when you crack open the pit, there's the kernel or nut inside. And it looks a lot like an almond. In fact, this is exactly akin to an almond. If you actually go to an almond orchard, they have these fruits that kind of look like tiny shrunken greenish 
uh, apricots. Same thing for, uh, for walnuts too, but we actually crack open the pit to get to the kernel. And there are cyanogenic glycosides inside a number of fruit kernels, including peaches and apricots and cherries, but it's hard to crack open a, a, a cherry kernel to, to get to the nut inside, and apples and pears and plums. So the cyanogenic glycoside is called amygdalin. Amygdala actually comes from the Latin for almond. And amygdalin can be metabolized into two glucose molecules, benzaldehyde, which is actually the thing that smells and tastes like almonds. If anybody actually ate one of those, I know a couple of people tasted one. It didn't taste all that good. They're, they're kind of bitter, but after the bitterness goes away, there's this very subtle aftertaste of an almond. And then there's this molecule of cyanide that gets released from it too. And cyanide blocks oxidative phosphorylation in your mitochondria. It binds to Fe plus 3 ions, ferric ions, in the mitochondria, which are found in a number of enzyme systems, including cytochrome oxidase, which is the final step of the electron transport chain. So it essentially turns off the electron transport chain so you can't produce enough ATP. When you're producing ATP, of course, you're converting ADP plus inorganic phosphate into ATP. But in the course of doing that, you actually consume two hydrogen ions. And this is actually the body's primary buffering mechanism for the acids we produce just as we go through life. If you turn this off, you're going to develop an acute metabolic acidosis. And so cyanide basically turns you into an anaerobe because you have much more inefficient ATP production by glycolysis only. And here's a graphic representation of everything you wanted to forget about biochemistry. And essentially, this part gets shut off by cyanide. You don't convert the oxygen into water, and then you can't pump hydrogen ions, and ATP synthase kind of shuts down. So this was being sold in a health food store. This is actually a, a case that uh, I wrote up and got published in Annals of Emergency Medicine. This lady was in Sedona, Arizona. Anybody ever been to Sedona? It is a place where all the nuts and freaks come out uh, to uh, try to get, uh, get healthier and find ways to colon cleanse, et cetera, et cetera. So she goes to this health food store and is looking for something for internal cleansing and somehow decides upon these apricot kernels, a big bag, about a pound bag of, uh, of apricot kernels. And so obviously, if it's natural, it must be safe. And I'm fond of saying sometimes 50-foot falls are natural too, but I generally don't recommend them to my patients. OK, moving on to station number five. There's this multicolored snake. What kind of snake is this? Coral snake. <clears throat> There's actually three different species of coral snakes that are found in the United States. There's one that's found in the desert southwest, the Sonoran coral snake. And there's two others that are found in the Deep South, which are actually a bit more dangerous than the Sonoran coral snake. But encounters with coral snakes are pretty darn rare. They're reclusive, they're shy, and they have actually a very inefficient biting and envenomation mechanism. So they're kind of small. They're about as big around as your little finger. And even if they open up their mouth as big as they can open it, they might be able to grab your web space or your nostril or your earlobe. But they can't get you in the meaty sections of your thigh or your arm like the rattlesnakes can. So 
what do you have to be drunk and comatose on the ground before one of these can in, can even latch on to you so bites are much less common than from the pit vipers there are two common poisonous snake families there's the crotaline snakes these are the ones that we're usually mostly worried about uh, including rattlesnakes and cottonmouths but the coral snake is a member of a different class, and so they actually cause a different kind of toxicity, which is not terribly surprising. Analapids include coral snakes and cobras. The envenomation syndrome from coral snakes is a lot more similar to cobras. Meaning what? What sort of clinical effects happen from cobra bites? They are neurotoxic. It was suggested that you get sleepy. Well, you don't get sleepy so much as you get so weak that you look like you're sleepy, just like someone who has myasthenia gravis looks like they're sleepy, but they're not. They're panicking. They just can't show that they're panicking because they can't breathe. So I remember learning, wow, this must have been back in Cub Scouts. How do you remember if it's a red and yellow <coughs> and black snake? Is it a dangerous one? Well, the simplest thing is just avoid all snakes. Uh, but, it, but if you're not going to do that, red on yellow, kill a fellow possibly if you're drunk, comatose, laying on the ground so they can latch onto you. So that's a coral snake. But there are other snakes that take advantage of the fact that other animals realize that snakes with these bright colors might be dangerous, and so they just mimic them. There's a number of uh, king snakes and milk snakes that kind of look like that, but the red touches black. The red never touches yellow. And then here's a map showing the range of the different coral snakes in the United States. This particular case actually occurred right about here, about halfway between Phoenix uh, and Tucson. It was a, a, an awesome story. Only a little bit of it is given there on the page. This guy and his partner owned an abandoned gold mine that they would go to every couple of weeks for semi-precious stones. And then they would sell these stones at various rock and gem shows. So they went there really early in the morning because the desert in Arizona gets hot during the day. Went there super early in the morning. They were finishing up. It was about 7 in the morning or so. And they're going to be crawling up the ladder to get out. And something falls on this guy's shoulder. And he thinks that his buddy dropped a toy snake on him. And then he brushes it off his shoulder, goes down the ladder because he was only a few feet up, and the thing kind of rears at him and hisses. And he does what everybody does who has a shovel, grabs the shovel and decapitates it, and then crawls up out of the mine. And as he's coming up, he's saying, oh, my God, that was a snake. I think it bit me. I'm getting lightheaded. I'm getting dizzy. I'm getting short of breath. And then his buddy drives him home, and he shows up at home and lies down on the couch and tells his wife that he's feeling miserable, and she calls poison control. And they say, really? A coral snake? Because they're so rare. And they describe what sounded exactly like a, a coral snake. Anyway, I said, well, the guy better come into the hospital for us to check him out because the problem is you can see nothing locally and the person might be paralyzed several hours later and be unable to breathe. So you need to treat them empirically, which I think the next couple of slides uh, go over uh, briefly. But what he called a bite mark on his neck, I called acne. Uh, and I watched him for a while, and he looked fine, and then we sent him home, and we didn't hear that he died. So this is opposed to the crotaline snakes, the pit vipers. And they're not called pit vipers because they hang out in pits. They're called pit vipers because they have this pit organ, which is a heat-sensing organ. Here's the eye over here, and there's the nostril, and this detects and ranges heat and helps them to attack jackrabbits and mice and rats and, and occasionally people. Crotaline snakes are by far the most common source of envenomation in North America. The toxicity that you get from crotaline snake bites has three different components. Local pain, swelling, and tissue damage. 
and it tends to be progressive. You get bitten on the hand, finger swells, 30 minutes later the hand's all swollen, then the forearm is swollen and so on and it'll work its way all the way up. Similarly on the legs. You can also get coagulation abnormalities, decreased platelets, the most common. You can also see a decrease in fibrinogen and an increase in the PT. It kind of looks from the laboratory standpoint like DIC. There's debate, is it really DIC or is it not? I think technically it's not, but it mimics it very well on labs. And then there is some...